All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight will be in Acts 23. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, Acts 23. As Paul has desperately been trying to minister to the Jews, he keeps finding himself in the middle of riots. Um, In this chapter, as Paul is making his way towards Rome, towards his end, as we move towards the end of Acts, we see Paul getting, I believe, um, a little more disappointed. He, he senses he's at the end. He knew when he went to Jerusalem he'd be bound. The Holy Spirit has been telling him in every city that he was going to be put in prison. And he didn't know if that meant prison because the end is coming or another prison sentence, but I'll get out and have more ministry opportunity. He really didn't know. But um, the way he carried himself in Ephesus when he had that pastor's conference, it sounded like this is it. I know it's it. And although the Bible doesn't tell us that he knows, the way he's carrying himself tells us that he gets a sense that this is towards the end of his ministry. In the beginning of his ministry, he wanted to minister to the Jews badly and has been trying. And everywhere he tries, he keeps getting moved to the Gentiles. Jews first, then the Gentiles. And that's okay, um, except his heart was really not trying to get to number two, I got to get one out of the way so I can get to the Gentiles, you know. I've got to try the Jews first, but then when they reject it, I can get right to the Gentiles where I've always wanted to be. He truly had a heart for the Jews. He really wanted his people to accept their Messiah. So important to him. As a Pharisee of Pharisees, as someone who's been studying the law and has been waiting and had persecuted Christ in the beginning, since coming to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior, so desperately wanted the rest of the hardened-hearted Jews to know as well. And he just keeps getting rejected. But God encourages him in this chapter, encourages him in uh, his failures. And I hopefully that'll speak to at least somebody tonight. In verse 1, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Paul is in front of the Sanhedrin. He's been taken there for an inquisition. They're going to find out what he really teaches, what he really believes, and uh, what they can do to him. And so this is supposed to be a fair trial. They have rules. They don't follow Roman law, but they do follow God's law. They're supposed to anyway. And so there's supposed to be a fair trial. Now, that hasn't stopped these guys yet. They obviously didn't give Jesus a fair trial. They haven't given anybody a fair trial when it comes to these things. And they don't want to hear their side of it. They want to pass judgment. They've already made a decision in their mind based on their own preferences. And so they've called Paul in basically as a formality so that they can sentence him. And he speaks up. And that's not what they're expected to do. That's not what they think. They're supposed to be, these prisoners are supposed to be terrified that they're there. They're supposed to be dumbfounded. They're supposed to just uh, plea bargain, basically. They're not supposed to give a defense. And so Paul says, I'm glad you've called me in here. I'd love to give my side of the story now. I'd love to give my defense. That's what I put out on, uh, on the Facebook page with some wonderful scriptures that God showed me during this time of study for chapter 23 about um, one-sidedness, you know, and how you get to try to defend yourself. And if you even don't get a chance to defend yourself, this chapter is proof that God is your defense. He's always our defense. 
Uh, and that's exciting. And, uh, and this chapter hopefully will encourage you for those who feel like they've been wrongly accused or perhaps feel like they've been railroaded or their, uh, their reputations have been uh, maligned. Um, God covers that. He'll take care of you. So Paul, not knowing what's going to happen and just going one step at a time here, decides to stand up and say, men, brethren, uh, you're supposed to be men. You're supposed to be my brethren. I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And that's all he said. And that warrants the high priest to think, smack him, because you wouldn't be here if you weren't guilty, is his idea. That's the idea of the high priest. You wouldn't be standing here if you weren't guilty. Smack him. You can't do that according to Jewish law. That can't happen until after the court has been uh, settled and the case has been set, you know, settled and the, and the sentence has been given. So Ananias commanded him to hit him, and God's, or Paul's response was pretty sharp. There's an exclamation point here. Some of the scholars, as you study, aren't sure what he means. How was it said? Was it said in anger and, and, and a lashing out, or was it said calmly? One of, the, one of the scholars said, I think he said it more calmly in such a way that it would carry more weight. I don't think so, personally. I'm not a scholar, but I see an exclamation point and I read it that way. And I know, I know what I would respond like if someone smacked me when I wasn't ready for it. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. I think he said it the way we think he said it. Um, for you sit and judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? In other words, that was an accusation he just made. You've broken the law. Whoever commanded me to be hit, you've broken the law. That's a huge deal. That's like looking the judge in the face and say, you need to go to jail, buddy. Probably not going to go well the rest of the trial for you. Though. But Paul, knowing more than probably all these guys put together, instantly as he gets smacked, says, you break the law. You've broken the law. You're supposed to try me. You're supposed to do this right. You're supposed to be a jewel, a gem, a beacon on a top of a hill for all the world to see what it's like to be God's chosen people and to follow God's law. And here you are corrupt. Here you are uh, going against what God said. You're a whitewashed wall. What he means by that is the same thing Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 through 28. He accused this same group of the same thing, and it is the same group. If you turn to Matthew 23, let's read that, because I think it's important to see where Paul may have picked up this phrase. Chapter 23, verse 25 is where we begin. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. In other words, there's a group of scribes and Pharisees together, and Jesus is calling them out. You cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And he goes on and on. Jesus doesn't just stop there. Makes me wonder if Paul wasn't the recipient of that rebuke, if he wasn't in the crowd when Jesus said that. We don't really know where Saul was, his former name, in this whole mix. Was he at the trial of Jesus? Was he listening? We know he was at the feet of Gamaliel, and Gamaliel was very much a part of this. What's going on? You know, where is he? Be? I don't know. 
Paul decides to use the exact same words Jesus used towards them. Paul's similarities to Christ are striking. (laughs) No pun intended. But as he gets struck by this high priest command, his response is the same as Jesus's. He wasn't afraid to call it like it was. You know, there's a balance here. Sometimes I, you know, you hear, oh, you, you shouldn't be so judgmental. You shouldn't be, well, what do you mean by that? You mean I shouldn't read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians? I shouldn't read all those books that Paul wrote to the people? Well, when you say don't be so judgmental, you're cutting out most of the New Testament then, the way you mean it. Because that's exactly what Paul did, was tell them to stop being those kind of people. Such were some of you, so knock it off. Don't be like that. Oh, you're so judgmental. You think you're higher and mighty than I. No, Paul didn't think that of himself. He, he considered him the least of the saints, the least of the apostles, the chief of sinners, he called himself. And he still was able to write those letters to those folks to tell them, hey, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it's supposed to look like. You need to stop doing that and start doing this. So don't be afraid. You know, as Christians, we get so beat by the world and beat by Christians who don't read their Bible that we're afraid to even say anything about sin because we're afraid they're going to think we're judgmental, that we're better than them, and we're not. We're simply doing what Paul did. And so Paul looks at this guy and says, you just broke the law. You're a whitewashed tomb. Here's what he means by that. This is something that we don't reference. Suppose um, if you went through a graveyard today, walked through a graveyard today, you would have to spend a week in solitary confinement, wash yourself, go through certain rituals and purifications and sacrifice one of your most expensive animals that you own or give it up some... Suppose you had to give up your iPod or whatever it is, or your, your iPhone. Suppose you got a brand new 8 and you had to walk through, you know, you walk through a cemetery by mistake in order to purify yourself, you had to give that up. That's the idea behind this. If these folks touched anything dead or a tomb, they'd have to go through this process. It was an expensive mistake because they were unclean for touching something that was dead or being around something that was dead. So to prevent an accidental bumping into one of these tombs, they would whitewash these things so you could easily spot them. Over time, these things, if you ever go to Israel, there are something called tells, uh, Tel Aviv and Tel whatever. The towns have that because the town would get destroyed and they would build the new town right on top of the old foundation. And pretty soon these things built layer after layer after layer till they're little hills. And these towns would be up on top of little hills. It's a tell, is what it was called. Well, you go over there today, and you can see that. And they point over there and say, that's a tell. I'm like, it looks like a hill to me. Well, no, this is desert. It's flat. It should be flat. That's a tell. Oh, I got it. Same thing would happen to these tombs. They would slowly but surely get dirt built up around until pretty much the top of it was maybe, you know, eight inches around. Some of these things would get so covered with dirt, some bigger than that. So to not accidentally step on one of these things, be impure, have to give up your, you know, iPhone 8, they'd whitewash these things. Landmine, danger, steer clear of these things. So he just said, you guys look great on the outside. You look like you're whitewashed. You look clean and pure, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. That was a super offensive statement to say to them. Super offensive, because that's all these guys did was try to stay pure. And to say, you're nothing but painted dead people, you're a walking zombie, basically, is a big offense. That means you are completely impure from the core. You are rotten to the center. And that's what Paul says to this high priest. Now, the next question is, did he know it was the high priest? Here's what he says in verse 4. And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? 
And Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. How was that said? Boy, don't you wish you were there, you know, kind of thing. Well, I don't know if I'd want to be there, but I want to be near it anyway and listen in on the conversation. He either said, I have an eye problem. This is my thorn in the flesh. I wasn't able to see. I didn't know who commanded this to happen. I wouldn't have spoken that way if I knew it was the high priest. Maybe. Or maybe he said, you know what, if you were the high priest and conducted yourself like the high priest, I wouldn't have had to have said this to you. But I wouldn't imagine the high priest ever saying to me to get struck when I hadn't gone through with the trial. So it was a total surprise to me. that. So I'm sorry that I talked to you that way, high priest. In other words, sarcastic. I lean towards that personally. That's my opinion. I didn't know you were the high priest because the high priest wouldn't talk like that. But since you are, yeah, of course not. No, that's what God's Word says. God's Word says I shouldn't do that. Verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Now, why did he say that? We like to pick everything apart. Because it's going to cause a problem. Here's what happens. Verse 7, And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God, which is exactly what Gamaliel said, who happens to be the leader of the Pharisee party. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. That's the result. So was Paul trying to get out of this trial, and so he caused a division so that they fought amongst themselves so that he could get away? Or was he beginning another opportunity to share the gospel with at least half the crowd? I lean towards that one, obviously. The choice is yours. Because we find out in verse 11 that he's not very happy. He's very upset. And God has to come alongside of him to encourage him in this. My guess is that Paul thought, here's my opportunity to at least get the Pharisees, of whom I'm a part of, of whom I got saved from. Maybe they'll listen to me. The Sadducees were the liberal groups at the time. They were the liberal scholars of the time. They just didn't believe in an everlasting life. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in spirits. I'm trying to figure out what they went to church for. What did they go to synagogue and do? Talk about what's not going to happen after they die? It makes no sense to me. An atheist just is mind-boggling to me. I have no idea what they're thinking. You know, so, so what if you're right, Mr. Atheist? Yikes. So there is no God, nothing happens. We all just kind of vanish into nothing and nothing we do ever matters and whatever you do today makes no difference at all, makes no bearing on it. The whole universe is winding down. It's all going to cool off eventually to the point where everything dies. That's not a very good life, you know, except you get to spend your whole life arguing with Christians and making their lives miserable because you don't believe what they believe. But that's what these guys would do. That's what these Sadducees believed. Now the Pharisees, on the other hand, although mixed traditions of men with the law very much believe the Bible, very much believe that there would be a life after death, very much believe in the Spirit and angels and all that. Okay, um, And so Paul is trying to appeal to those who might even have an ear to hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So he points to them. Well, this causes a squabble and a fight. And they're obviously got to hold one on each, you know, Sadducee's got him on this side. No, he's going to jail. These guys are like, no, we're going to set him free because the guy actually thought that he was going to get ripped apart. So they're actually pulling and tugging on Paul at this time while this is happening. A sad time for Paul. It says this in verse 11, but that following night or the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now there's a lot going on here, a lot more than meets the eye. And as I studied, I learned more and more. I love God's word. It's deep. I'm sure I didn't even scratch the surface, but for me, I learned something new. And that's, that's exciting to me. Be of good cheer, he says. I want you to be of good cheer. What's Paul upset about, being in jail? He's not upset about being in jail. Paul's been here before. That doesn't bother him. That's not what he has to be encouraged out of. His situation doesn't bother him. His circumstances aren't causing him to be sad. He's been here before and has done great things in this situation before. That's very convicting to me. I spend a lot of my prayer time asking God to get me out of my circumstances. And I've never been in this circumstance before. I spend most of my time asking God to help me and get me out of this one. God says, no, I just want to stand beside you in it. I want to meet you here. I want to work right here. Paul's being encouraged not for the fact that he's in those circumstances of being in jail. He's being encouraged because he didn't get a chance to minister the gospel to these guys. And God says so in this statement. You have testified to me in Jerusalem. Now you're going to Rome. Paul has got to be thinking to himself, when am I going to get the chance to testify of Jesus in Jerusalem? Every time I open my mouth, I don't even get to the resurrection. I mention the Gentiles. Oh, stupid, stupid, stupid. I know how they're going to respond. They hate the Gentiles. If it, maybe if I just left the Gentiles out of it, I could have gone further with the gospel. This is what he's thinking. And God says, no, no, you did it. You testified of me in Jerusalem. Be of good cheer. In other words, Jesus comes alongside and says, don't worry, you didn't miss an opportunity to lead people to me. You did it. They just rejected it. That's what Paul's upset about. Paul's upset because he didn't get a chance to get all the way through the gospel with these guys. That's so convicting for me. I would have been begging, God, get me out of this jail. I don't belong here. Look at these scratches. Those guys were really pulling hard on my arms yesterday. Here's the other thing that's going on. He says his name. It's odd to me. I don't walk into one of my kids' rooms and say, Anna, sleep well tonight. I don't need to. She knows who I'm talking to. I'm in the room with her. I just say, sleep well tonight, right? I don't walk up into the kitchen where Jenny's alone, and I say, Jenny, it's odd, you know? Why is he saying it? Turn to Acts chapter 9. This is when he gets converted. This is when he comes to know Jesus. Acts chapter 9. He said to him in the beginning in verse 4, we don't need to go there, but I'm going to read it to you. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He calls him Saul, Saul. Saul is his Jewish name. Now as he goes on, and he gets saved and all that, and I want you to go into the city and I want you to wait. 
we get to verse 15. He says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And telling Ananias, I want you to go minister to this guy named Saul. Now, his name has been changed from Saul to Paul. Paul is his Roman name. See, Paul has a mixed heritage. He's got Jew, and he's got a little bit of the other. Um, But this is his Roman name. This is what he would be called uh, by the Romans. God changes his name here from Saul to Paul because Saul's new ministry is not to the Jews, never was. He says right there, I'm going to send this vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. He never says to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. He says from the very beginning, you're called Saul, now Paul, to minister to the Gentiles. I'm changing it. Saul was your Jewish name. Saul was your Jewish opportunity. I'm changing it to Paul because you're going to the Gentiles now. We're going Roman. So at the end in the middle of his discouragement here back in prison because he didn't get the gospel out to the Jews, he says, be of good cheer, Paul, Roman Paul, the one I sent to the Gentiles to begin with, you've done it. You've testified of me in Jerusalem. God must have known, Paul, they're never going to receive that from you. They're never going to understand the gospel from you. You can write Hebrews later on. I don't know if he wrote Hebrews or not. I think he did. But for now, I want you to focus on the Gentiles because you're, you're done with these guys. You're done with Jerusalem. It's never worked. You've never gotten through to them. Paul, you've testified of me in Jerusalem. Now you must also bear witness at Rome. That's why I gave you the name. That's why I've called you to that. Now, why do I make such a big deal out of it? Who cares, right? Because we spend a lot of time trying to do what God hasn't called us to do. We spend a lot of time looking for those things. No, 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 you don't understand. I want to do this. I know you do. I know you do, and I'll let you try, and I'll let you go there, but there's not a lot of fruit, is there? No, but I really want to try. Oh, I'm so frustrated. Oh, I just can't make this thing work. Why doesn't this ministry go? I can't think, can't think, I just, are you ready to do what I asked you to do now? And just do what I asked you to do? Be content with what I've asked you to do, Paul? Yeah, I guess. And that's my response a lot of times is, yeah, I guess, I want to be an evangelist so bad. I want people to stand up and come forward. We have a lot of baptisms, I think. But people don't stand up when I ask them to stand up. People don't walk forward when I ask them to walk forward. People don't get on their knees bawling and weeping and throwing their cigarettes and their their beer bottles at, at the altar of God when I do this sort of thing. They just kind of look at you and... They look around to see if anybody's going to stand up. That's what, it feels, that's what it's like up here. It's like, come forward, all who want to come to Jesus tonight. That's why every head will be bowed now. And maybe you can get by with, I see your hand back there, and nobody looks, you know, kind of thing. I'd be lying, I'd be bad. That's not what I'm made to do. I'll do the work of an evangelist, but it is work for me. Greg Laurie, he don't even do it right. I'm kidding. Of course he does it right. He gets a Billy Graham. Really? And you all know that you're all sinners and Jesus died on the cross. Now come forward. 
That's all you had to say, man? <laughs> it's what you're gifted at doing. What has God called you to do? What has he made you to do, you know? Paul, are you ready to go to Rome now? I am. Be content with what God's called you to do. Be content with that and do it. I was talking to Jenny, and uh, I said something super profound because I have those moments, not to anybody else but myself. I love to hear myself talk. And I said, you know, I'm never more comfortable than when I'm alone. I know exactly who I am. I know exactly what I want to say. I know exactly what I need to think. I'm exactly right with God when I'm alone. It's when I'm around other people that I'm not so sure. I don't know what they want to hear from me. I don't know what they want to see in me. You know, I don't know what they expect, and I want them to be happy. I don't want them to be offended by me. I don't want them to be hurt. I don't want them, I don't want to say anything stupid. But when I'm alone, never, ever worry about it at all. I know exactly where I stand with God. I know that he loves me. I know that he's pleased with me. I know, I know for a fact it's only when I'm around other people that I'm not so sure, you know. And eventually you have to get to that place that you're that person that God wanted you to be. Don't misunderstand me. I am not saying it's okay. I hate that when we say that to each other. Well, that's just how God made me. Well, it's sin, and you need to quit. If it's sin, it's sin, and you need to stop it right now. I'm not, I don't get to be that guy anymore. Such were some of you. God changes us. But, but, I want to be who God wants me to be, and I can't worry about it if I'm not what people expect I should be in Christ, you know? I don't know if that means anything to anybody else or everybody can identify with that or not, but um, what a blessing to just be content to know you're okay with God and you're going to do what he's equipped you to do and there's always going to be trolls in your life, always trolls. You can't escape the trolls. Just don't be one. Man, if everybody, if we could all just not be trolls, right? And I'm not saying you are, you know. Thanks, I think. Um, And just walk with the Lord, you know, and do what he's called you to do. Paul, are you ready to go to Rome? J.D., are you ready to do what I called you to do and only that? And quit trying to step out into areas by faith, more by presumption, into areas I've never called you to do, you know? Just do what I've called you to do and do it consistently and do it without fail and do it faithfully unto me and do it unto me, you know? that I can do. And that's easy all of a sudden. And all of a sudden, it makes sense. And all of a sudden, there's a load off of the expectations of others. All I have is the expectations of God. And I know exactly what that is. And he's equipped me to do it. and He's called me to do it. What a blessing. Three different times Paul recites, or it's written in the book of Acts, his conversion. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Acts 22:21 when he failed again and got to the Gentiles speaking to the Jews and then again later on in Acts 26:17 which we'll get to in a few weeks hopefully just 2 weeks and it's the same thing every time I want you to minister to the Gentiles I want you to minister to the Gentiles I want you to minister to the Gentiles you know Okay let's move on verse 12 And when it was day Some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath. 
This is crazy. And bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. We're going to set up an ambush. I've got to do a quick head count here, and I'm going to get a little theatrical. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Ben, you're this side. Over here. Everybody over this side, stand up if you don't mind. Can you stand up over here? All of you stand up. Okay, you guys look at these guys. Now look at them with your meanest face. Like you're going to kill them. Like you want to kill them. Look at them. None of these people, that's about 40, aren't going to eat or drink until you're dead. That's intimidating. You can sit down. Thank you. Now the other side, stand up. It's your turn. You got to see it. You got to see it. Can you imagine what this would be like with all these angry faces? Quit smiling. You're ruining the whole effect. (laughs) We're going to kill you. We're not going to eat or drink until you're dead. So I'd sit down. Thank you. That's intimidating. Paul had 40 men who vowed together we'll neither eat or drink until this one man is dead. That's intense. What is wrong with these people? How could you be that angry with somebody? It says in the last days that people are going to say that they do God's service by killing you Christians. They're going to do God's service by killing you Christians. They're going to call it that. Jesus warned them of that. They're going to think they do God's service by killing you Christians. We haven't experienced that yet, have we? That's a little taste of what it'll look like. Every Muslim in the world quotes this verse about the Jew. Every tree and every rock will cry out when the Jew, there's a Jew behind me, come and kill him. They're hoping for that day. It's in the Quran. Every Jew is going to be hiding behind a tree and a rock, they think, and every tree and the rock is going to rat on them and say, they're behind me, come kill them. That's every Muslim's hope. Okay? It doesn't take much of a step for that to move to Christianity. They just haven't said it yet. They think the same thing. And I'm not saying them. I, right now, we don't see a, a Muslim in the crowd. What we do see are a bunch of Jews wanting to kill Paul, a Jew, for believing on Christ. And there's 40 of them that won't eat or drink until he's dead. That's intense. And now all I want you to do, sir is to make sure he's out in the open so that we can do what we've said we're going to do. There's 40 of us. We're going to lay in wait. All you have to do is this, commander. Get him to come down. So, when Paul's sister's son, his nephew, this is the first time we hear he's even got family, right? So Paul's nephew heard of their ambush. He went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is it you have to tell me? How little is this kid? How little is it that a grown man takes him by the hand and takes him aside and says, okay, now tell me what you want to say. 
to the point where I want you to talk to me privately. I don't want you to be intimidated by this giant centurion going, Paul told me to bring him to you, you know. You know, I don't know if I want to share my story right now. Come over here, little kid. This is a great commander. Come, I love this commander. I don't, do we know his name? I, don't, I didn't read far enough ahead to know if we know this guy's name. I don't remember. Oh, yeah, we do. He writes a letter. His name is uh, Claudius Lysias, right? That's who he is. Okay. This guy's great. Come over here, little kid. Tell me what you want to say. So he tells him. So he brings him over. Um, what is it you want to tell me? Verse 20. And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though he were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, you shouldn't be a little snitch. It's not what it says. Isn't that funny, though, how that is so common? Hey, don't be a tattletale. Don't be a little snitch. Nobody likes a snitch. That's absolutely not true. And it's amazing how many little things we pick up from the world that we pass on to our kids, not even reading what the scriptures have to say about it. You absolutely should have snitched on these guys. You absolutely should have told this. You have to tell the truth. Be careful. I just throw that out there. Be careful what you teach your kids. It may be contrary to God's word. You know, it's not okay. Of course it's okay to snitch. Tell no one that you have, revi- you have revealed these things to me. Keep it a secret. I want to surprise them, is the idea. I love this. Now, if you turn to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 9. <coughs> Proverbs 11. It's clear back, oh, about a third of the way back, maybe. I'll read it to you here. The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. That's one of the scriptures I put on the Facebook page. Um, It's one of the posts, one of the scriptures I want to put in that post. Because that's one of the things that came to my mind. They've got a lot of plans. The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. Paul's going to be delivered here. Word gets out. We've got this great plan. We've got 40 guys who won't eat or drink. What could possibly go wrong? You know? Well, one little kid who's willing to tell the truth, who has enough guts to walk up to Paul and say, Paul, I heard something terrible that's going to happen to you. Uncle Paul, you know? Hey, go tell the commander. Okay, I'll go tell the commander. You know, one little kid. I love it. So here's what this guy does, this commander, Claudius Lysias. And he called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers. That's what a centurion is. A centurion's in charge of one whole, one, one group of 100, right? Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts, put them on a horse, to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter in the following manner. Won't those 40 guys be surprised? They're already hungry and thirsty. They just can't wait for it to get done. They're super motivated. They've been talking to each other in the bushes. We're going to really get one. I'm going to hit him first. I'm going to get mine in there. 
We're going to be hungry for a really long time. I'm so hungry, dude. You know, you could just see them all going, oh, Evey, you know, what did we do? I love this. Talk about overkill. Well, there's 40 of them. 40 Roman soldiers probably would have covered it, you know, but we're not going to even get close. We're going to get 600 total, okay, besides the horses. We're going to get 200 soldiers, and then we're going to get 100 spearmen, just, or what does it say, 200 spearmen? So, okay, there's 400 footmen. And they're going to come along. And Paul's going to be in this white horse in the middle. I just love this. What a great scene, you know. <laughs> These guys are going, <sighs> you know. Hmm. You going to eat that? And he wrote this, writes his letter, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor, governor Felix. And you know what? Felix wasn't. Read the history on Felix, Okay. This guy is a jerk of all jerks, okay? He was, a, he was a slave to begin with, and he's the only slave that ever got risen to power of government in the Roman Empire. That's why everybody thought he was great. Oh, he's a slave. He got me. And that's only because he had a, he had a, he had a cousin that got him in, okay, is the idea. And his cousin spoke up to, to, the, to the emperor about it, and the emperor says, sure, all right, bring Felix up. Felix was a jerk of jerks. He would take every bribe. You can read it. It's, uh, Josephus writes about this guy. He's just a, it's a disaster. Um, he'd take bribes. He was one of the most corrupt politicians you've ever seen. Okay, so most excellent Governor Felix doesn't fit. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. So Felix, Felix the slave, who's now a governor, who is married to this woman named uh, I think it's Bernice now. He's got like three, he had three wives. Boom, boom, boom. And the third one's name is Bernice. Um, I think that's how it goes. I, I didn't read too far ahead, but I think that's what it was. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antip- Antipatris. Antip- Antipatris? I don't know. Uh, the next day, they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. So the guys that were on foot didn't have to go too far, just get him free, you know. And then they took off on horses, and they were fine. They went back to their barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. That doesn't mean anything to you, okay? To be kept in Herod's praetorium means nothing. What's the place that Trump goes to in Florida? What's it called? Marla? Marlo? Mia Largo. Mia Largo. That's what this place is like. Mia Largo is like the resort of all resorts. It's like the posh of all posh. And so he's like, where are we going to keep Paul? Mm-hmm. Let's put him in like this five-star hotel over here. He can just stay there since the king's not there. He could just stay at this praetorium, you know. Paul's, I mean, I don't know what it looked like, but I'm picturing him looking out over the Mediterranean Sea there because it's a port city and he's looking there. He's, someone's giving him grapes and he's eating. And these 40 guys, now I don't, I, they probably didn't follow him, but then the, the, the contrast is hilarious to me. 
Paul is in this praetorium at a five-star hotel waiting for his time, waiting for his opportunity to minister or at least give out his side of the story. And these 40 guys are over here starving to death. Please be encouraged by that. You have enemies. Everybody has enemies. Everybody's got trolls in their life. But you, the righteous, you as you walk with God, understand that God has got you. God makes them God looks at them and causes them to stumble. And I have several scriptures I want to read you. I have 10 minutes left. It's meant to be encouraging because this is a common theme throughout God's word. This is a common thing that God wants us to realize in our hearts and I want to drive it home with his word, not with my words, okay? Isaiah 8.10, call your counselors of war, but they will be worthless. Develop your strategies, but they will not succeed for God is with us. A call to trust the Lord. The Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does, he said. God's got you. Proverbs 19.21 You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. It's going to happen. He's sovereign. Psalm 33.10 The Lord frustrates the plans of the nations and thwarts all their schemes. If you're worried about how things are going in the world and you're concerned about the governments and how people are, oh, these people, just pray. Honestly, it doesn't make any difference. God can change it. He changed it last November. That wasn't how it was supposed to go down. He changed it. He's moving things. He's moving chess pieces around. Nobody's going to do anything against the Lord. God's will, and that's supposed to give us peace. It's supposed to give us pause to not be fretting and to worried. Uh, to be worried. Proverbs, uh, let's see, Psalm 2111, although they plot against you, their evil schemes will never succeed. Proverbs 2130, no human wisdom or understanding or plan can stand against the Lord. Psalm 148, Lord, do not let evil people have their way. Do not let their evil schemes succeed or they will become proud. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4, Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Psalm 9.15, the nations have fallen into into the pit they dug for others. Their own feet have been caught in the trap they set. 2 Samuel 15, 31. This is an actual story that went down. When someone told David that his advisor, Ahithophel, was now backing Absalom, that was his adversary, David prayed, O Lord, let Ahithophel give Absalom foolish advice. Verse 14 of chapter 17 of that same book, 2 Samuel 17, 14. There's the answer to the prayer. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, a Hushai, I can't even pronounce that guy's name. This guy's advice is better than Ahithophel's. For the Lord had determined to defeat the council of Ahithophel, which really was uh, the better plan, so that he could bring disaster on Absalom. When Ahithophel realized that his advice, this is verse 23, had not been followed, he saddled his donkey, went to his hometown, set his affairs in order, and hanged himself. He died there and was buried in the family tomb. Do you have an adversary? Do you have an enemy? Are you with God? Don't worry about it. 
Let God worry about it. Give room to God. Let him do what he does best. I could come up with plans and ways to defend myself, and you can come up with plans and ways to thwart their plans, and we could be scheming in our little war room while they're scheming in their little war room, and we can be... (laughs) Or you can just say, God, I have no idea what's going on around me. Would you just take care of me? I'm going to keep doing what you've called me to do. And all of a sudden, all these folks that are against you just seem to be falling down. God's got this. God's got you. He's got me. It's important to remember, though, he says this to the righteous. And what that means is not those who are perfect, not those who are sinless, but those who are found in Christ. Are you in Jesus? Your enemies will come to nothing. Their plans will come to nothing. God is on your side. Nobody can thwart him. And we have a beautiful example of Paul. Paul, you're going to Rome. God said, you're going to Rome. It doesn't matter if 40 people say they're not going to eat or drink, you're going to Rome. Don't worry about it. You're going to get there. Jesus told us that if I don't go, I won't be able to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. And when I do go, I'm going to prepare a place for you that I may return and take you to that place. Jesus said that about every, everybody that's a Christian, everybody that's a believer in Jesus. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and get you and take you to that place that I'm preparing for you. We either believe it or we don't believe it. Oh, but what about, and what if, and I think I might, and I... Rest. Be at peace. God's got you. God's going to get you there. That's the encouragement. Now Paul is going to give them out, give an earful to these guys. He's really going to go for it boldly. And uh, I look forward to studying those with you in the next few weeks. It's encouraging. So read ahead a little bit, maybe 24 and 25, and kind of get it under your, get it in your mind and try to get your mind around it. I wonder about those 40 guys. Do you think they went and ate? I guarantee you they didn't fulfill their oath. I guarantee you that none of them said, well, I guess we're going to starve to death. I guarantee you they all just gave up on it and walked away. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are to us. You've called Paul to a mission. You've called him to a specific ministry. And as he fulfills that ministry, you have done nothing but protect him. Not from circumstances. You didn't get him out of jail. You stood beside him in that jail and told him to be of good courage, to be, in, to be cheerful in that. Lord, forgive me when I ask you to get me out of my circumstances and to not just rejoice in the fact that you're with me in my circumstances and that these things may be about your plan and that I need to walk in those circumstances to fulfill your plan. I have no idea who I'm supposed to run into every day. I have no idea who you want ministered to. And so, God, wherever I find myself, Lord, help me to be of good cheer, to be joyful in every circumstance because I'm your child, because I'm your minister, because I have a a mission that you've called me to. So, Lord, help me to be of good cheer. Help us all to be of good cheer no matter where you have us and to be ready and willing to go wherever you call us to go, to minister to whomever you call us to minister to, Lord. That's our heart. We really want to be those kind of people, not mediocre, not, not marginal, not just saved, not just barely squeaking in, but Lord, we want to be used of you. We want to be completely yours, servants of yours here on earth. So Lord, help us to live that way, God. Live like Paul lived. Not discouraged of the change, but discouraged because he didn't get to complete the gospel. 
Lord bless these guys as they go today. In Jesus' name, amen.